1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. We're going to start the, uh, the fifth chapter and uh, probably another couple weeks or so we'll finish up chapter 5 and get started on 2 Thessalonians. Uh, tonight, as we, what we're going to be talking about tonight is sort of, sort of a continuation of what we talked about last week. Last week, you remember, uh, Paul was talking about the rapture. The, the, the snatching away of the church as it's, as it, it, the, the word literally means that's used there. And, and, uh, and so we're going to continue on the theme of some end time issues. Uh, but tonight we're going to be talking about a different part of that. So, uh, you know, during Paul's stay at, in Thessalonica, he, he taught the church about the coming day of judgment. Yet, despite his teaching, the Thessalonians were still puzzled about many of the de details. And they had three basic questions about the end times that they were wrestling with. First of all, and this is the one we talked about last week, and he answered this. What happens to Christians who die before Jesus comes back? And, uh, and then kind of related to that and what we're going to be talking about tonight, the second question was, was it possible that they had somehow missed the Lord's return and we're now living in the day of the Lord. or the, And we're going to talk about what that phrase means a little bit more. And then the third question is, what would the signs be that indicate the end of the, uh, the, end of the age has come? And what, when, when is this all going to take place? What are the, when is Jesus coming back? When is the day of the Lord coming? All these kind of questions. And, and Paul begins with chapter 5 with, by, by making a notable transition in subject matter. And we know that he does this because he uses this Greek phrase that's, that's translated about, or some translation says, you know, like in NIV, it says now about, we'll read it in a moment. Some translations say now concerning this or whatever. Um, and, and it's a, that's a phrase he often uses to indicate a shift from one subject to another. In fact, I mean, if you like in first Corinthians or in Corinthians alone, uh, he, he does that many, many, many times. And so it's a, it's a device that he uses to let the reader know, okay, I'm done, I'm done with that. Now let's go on to this subject. And that's what he does here. And that's significant because uh, he uses this phrase to transition in his discussion from the rapture of the church into what's known as the day of the Lord. And Paul does not combine these two subjects, these two discussions. Uh, had he done so, then we would probably be forced to conclude that the rapture is somehow to be included in the events of the day of the Lord. Uh, uh, however, rather than tying them together, he appears to separate them on purpose into two distinct events. So let's read verses 1 through 11, then we'll get into this, and some of what I just said will make more sense as we, as we get into it tonight. Now, brothers, about times and dates. So there's the word that he uses to, to signify as a transition. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on, preg on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like, that, like, like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or, or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, 
putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So this portion of the text begins with an implied question. Uh, and the, the question that it implies is that they had asked him, when is Jesus coming again? And so he's answering them by saying, now brothers, concerning dates and times, I don't need to write, I'm, uh, there's no need for me to write uh, anything about that. So, and on the surface, that seems like a fair question because after all, think about it. If the Thessalonians could know the times and the dates, the seasons, all these things, then if we know the day Jesus is coming, we can prepare for it, right? We can be ready for it. And Paul reminded them that they had uh, already had enough information to be fully prepared. That's what he said. He said about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. He said, for you know very well. He's saying you already know what you need to know. You're asking this question, but I'm not going to answer that question because you know what you need to know. There's a little bit of irony in this and that they were ignoring information that they already had to ask for information that, did, that they did not need. And this is still a tendency among us as Christians. We have the, the revealed word of God. We have what he's shown us right there in black and white. And how many times do we as Christians chase after people, you know, that had, you know, a dream or a vision over here, or they have this, we want some extra new revelation when, when we, we already have everything that we need. Now, I'm not saying that, that those things don't play, take place. I'm, I'm, they do, but I'm saying sometimes what we do is we get caught up chasing after the spectacular and we, we forget the everyday stuff that he has given to us. And that's the temptation here. Dates and times were not what the Thessalonians needed. Instead, what they needed was a reminder that the Lord's coming was imminent. They had the information uh, the, 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 that the Lord's coming was, was, was right away. They, they had the information, but what Paul was trying to help them see was what they needed was the preparation. He said, you already know what you need to know. Now you need to focus on being prepared for what you know. So Paul was convinced that his, his prior teaching on the Lord's coming was sufficient. He didn't need to give them any more information. In fact, dates and times were not part of God's re revelation for the church uh, and there, there's some real practical reasons for that. You know, first of all, that you think about this early church in the first century, if they had known that it was going to be hundreds or thousands of years before uh, the, the Jesus came back, that would probably stifle their urgency and passion. And they'd say, well, then, you know what, we don't need to worry about it right now. And we would have, it would have been to our detriment because their passion and their uh, uh, their, their urgency in that day is what helps spread the gospel. And second of all, if it was the other way around, uh, if we, if we knew that Jesus was coming two days from now, if we had that advanced, advanced knowledge, then it could lead us to making rash, rash decisions. Or maybe if it was a little further out, maybe if it was like two months out and we know it's two, two months out, this would be, this would lead to what was taking place. You remember the Thessalonians, some of them had quit their jobs 
and they were sponging off of other people because they said, what's the point of working? You know, Jesus is coming back um, and I just need to be doing the master's work. And so we, we might make rash decisions based on that um, and, and based and maybe even cause some panic in other people, uh, not to mention in our own lives. But, but God never intended for us to know when Christ is coming specifically. He never gave us a date. We, he never said that we would know the, the day and the time that he's coming. But what he did tell us, and it makes it clear is, he very clearly intended for us to know that Jesus is coming. So the timing of it, it was not what was important as far as what God is trying to communicate to us as a church, as followers of Christ. But what he was communicating to us is the urgency of the fact that he is coming. And, he's, and, he, and he said, don't worry about the time. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't give date, dates and times to us. It gives a promise. Jesus is coming. And, and when you start getting into dates and times, and you know if you think it's going to be too far, it's going to be way down the road, or it's going to be really close, it changes our attitude. And you know if you think it's way down the road, then you become indifferent. And an indifferent church, church lacks motivation. If we think it's coming real soon, then maybe we get panicked and a panicked church lacks, lacks peace. But a church that says, I don't know when it's happening, but I know it's coming. That's an expectant church. And that church is filled with passion. So while the Thessalonians did not need to have a knowledge of the times and the dates, what they did need, Paul, and this is what Paul gave them, was an understanding of the day of the Lord. Uh, there's no question Paul had taught them that the day of the Lord represented a future time of God's judgment. We know that because he didn't have to introduce the whole concept of, of the day of the Lord. In fact, from what we read, what we can deduce from the, from Thessalonians is that they had thought, they believed that maybe they had missed the return of Christ and now they were experiencing the day of the Lord. And that was uh, uh, bothering them, that was, that was discouraging them, that was frightening them because they knew enough about the day of the Lord to know this is a bad deal. Uh, and so this is a future time of God's judgment that he's talking about. Um, let me bring it into our modern uh, terminology and you'll know exactly what we're saying. The day of the Lord refers to what we oftentimes nowadays would call the great tribulation. It is a time of God's judgment and wrath being poured out. And, and the day of the Lord was predicted and discussed not just in the New Testament. It's not a New Testament idea. It goes all the way back in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll give you one example from Amos. Listen to how Amos describes this day. He writes, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. He talked about a bad day. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? So this is a, this is a fearful time that's been known, it's been prophesied that it's coming. And he had, Paul had provided the Thessalonians with enough knowledge to know that the day of the Lord will, will bring God's severest judgment on the ungodly. Paul had already taught at length about the day of the Lord and, and he had just answered a question concerning fellow believers who had died. And so now he, he transitions into the day of the Lord. Now, interesting here is Paul, 
as far as we can tell, was the first to associate the day of the Lord, as talked about in the Old Testament, with the coming of Jesus Christ. And here he compared the coming of the day of the Lord to a thief coming in the night. Now, <clears throat> that, that's not new terminology. He certainly had, uh, had heard something very similar, similar to that. He'd probably been told by the disciples. He'd probably read maybe what some of the uh, Gospels uh, writers had written. But we know that Jesus used terminology very similar to that. He discussed his second coming and compared it to the, to the coming of a thief. Listen to these, Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then a few verses later, so he's talking about his return. Verse 43, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So also you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So you see there, he's comparing it to a thief coming in the night. In Luke 12, 35, be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. So here again, we have the idea of Jesus talking about and comparing his returning to somebody coming in the middle of the night. And so what is it saying here? The comparison of Christ coming uh, to, to that of a thief coming in the night reveals to us, the, the idea is that it's going to be sudden and that it's going to surprise many people. It's going to surprise many people. And, and listen, you know, the coming of a thief is never a joyful announced event, right? It's not one that people are excited about. And no thief ever informs the victim of his intentions before the crime. You know, it's like, hey, just want you to know, I'm breaking in tomorrow night. Hope you can have a party ready. You know, it's not, that's not how it works. And, and so this is an idea that it's going to catch many people off guard. It's going to surprise many people. Um, and they're just not going to be ready. Uh, yet yet the, what's interesting here, because so, sometimes we get this idea that, that even the people in the church are going to be caught off guard. But that's not what Paul says here. Because when Paul speaks of those who will be surprised, he does not have in mind the Thessalonians. Their response is going to be much different because what did he say? He said, you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. He's saying the coming is going to be like a thief in the night and many people are going to be surprised. But he said, you're not going to be surprised. You're not going to be caught off guard. And, and, and the fact is God does not keep his people in the dark about future event. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to know every detail of how he does it and when he does it and all those kind of things. But every Christian, every follower of Jesus knows that both Jesus and judgment are coming to this world. And he, and Paul seeks to reassure the Thessalonians about what they know and to encourage them uh, to, to faithfulness in light of Christ's coming. So really what he's trying to do here in talking to the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord, about this time of judgment, is not so that they'll, they'll be sitting there saying, 
you know, well, we're going to be surprised by this, but it's to help them understand that it's going to come suddenly and that they now in, because they know it's coming, they're not going to be surprised because they know it's coming. Uh, and, and that he wants them to be watchful and ready when he does return. We'll come back to uh, something that's on the tip of my tongue right here. It's something I almost want to say now, but I know that's going to come up later. But look at verse 3. He says, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. So to, to reinforce the fact that this seven-year period of tribulation uh, here, which is referred to as the day of the Lord, that, that it will be for unbelievers rather than believers, Something interesting happens here that's very subtle that if you're not paying attention, you won't notice because Paul changes the pronouns that he's using. Because before this, he's talking about, he's saying, speaking to them, he's referring to you. But now in this verse, he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. So there's a subtle shift there that helps us understand that he's saying, when I'm talking about what's coming, this, this, this destruction, this, this judgment, this wrath of God that's coming, it's not for you, it's for them. It's for those who don't know Christ. And so he, he's referring in this verse, he's or inferring at least, to uh, not to believers who have been raptured to heaven, but to unbelievers who remain on earth. And, and so... He, he's as he's describing this these events, he began this section, as we just talked about, with the analogy of a thief coming in the night. But now he continues it with another analogy. And this analogy is a, a labor pains that suddenly overcoming a, a, a pregnant woman. So now what's different there is that a pregnant woman knows labor pains are coming. They know they're coming. So that's not the idea that he's trying to communicate here because the, about surprise. He's not trying to communicate surprise here because that's the thief in the night. That's the surprise element. But what he's talking about here, it, 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 you know, is that, uh, is that it's uh, uh, unavoidable. When, when a pregnant woman's labor pains come, there is the indication that birth will soon take place. And it's that it's happening, it's going down, and, you know, she can't say, no, you know, this is not a very convenient time. Let's just do this later. No, because when it's time, when the baby says, I'm coming out, <laughs> then that baby's coming out. You know, that's just the way it is. When labor pains start, the baby's coming. You know, and I think maybe we lose this idea here a little bit because in our modern world, both pregnancy and delivery uh, are both, uh, most often sanitized and they're anesthetized and, and they, they, there's all kinds of modern drugs where they can slow the process down, you know, if it's moving too fast or whatever. But you got to think about this. When Paul wrote this in the first century, labor pains were the sudden signs of an inescapable period of pain and danger and, and not, and, and <clears throat> danger much more so than it is in today's world because, uh, in, during birth back in the first century, the possibility of losing a mother or losing the newborn infant were significantly higher than they are today. And so this conveys the idea not only of the inevitability of the pain coming, but also it also speaks of the danger that's coming uh, down the road. It's, as John Stott, one of the great preachers in, uh, in modern uh, 
church history, he put it like this. He said, the thief gives you no warning and labor pains give you no escape. This is the idea that he's trying to communicate. The day of the Lord is coming. This time of judgment is coming. This time of God's wrath is coming. It is coming and it's going to surprise a lot of people. They're not going to be ready for it. In fact, we're going to see in a few moments, he's saying a lot of them are going to be asleep. They're, 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 they're napping through the warnings that God is giving and that it's inescapable that once it comes, there's nothing you can do to avoid that. There's, and then, and so, uh, but he says that there are many, that are going to be lulled into a false sense of peace and safety. Uh, I think we see this a lot in our world and you can see how this plays out because you can go to somebody who's far from God and you can ask them, you know, if Jesus were to come or you were to die, you know, do you think you go to heaven? And almost all of them will say, oh yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Well, I've been basically a good person. That is a false peace and safety. That is a situation where they feel like everything's good and they feel like everything's going to be fine when, as it says in, in, in right after that, they're going to be plunged into sudden destruction. Um, they're going to find themselves facing that. The, the word destruction is also used, the same word is used in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And there it actually specific, specifically refers to separation from God. This is what it says. It says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. See, when we talk about, you know, when you, when you talk about hell, what we're really talking about is being separated from the presence of God. That's what will make it hell. You know, you talk about all the things, the lake of fire and all these things, and you can go into all that if you want to. But what really is going to be torture is knowing that I could have been in the presence of God, but now I'm eternally separated from him. Because think about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There is no human being on earth that has experienced in their lifetime what it's like to exist without the presence of God surrounding them. I mean, isn't, isn't God everywhere present here? So even if I'm not a follower of Jesus, I'm still living in his presence. I may be completely numb to it. I may be dead to that, which, which that's really what an unbeliever is, is somebody who is dead to God. They're spiritually dead. However, I'm still existing in his presence. And then when that day comes where, where judgment falls and I, and I'm cast into the lake of fire or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm condemned to hell, suddenly I'm existing in a place where the presence of God has been removed. And that's the torture of it. That's the destruction. And, and part of what Paul's talking about here is when Christ returns, that's going to be the end. When the day of judgment comes, when it's over, it's over. There'll be no reprieves. You don't get second chances after you die. There's no escape. Uh, it's, it's, it's done. It's over. In fact, I, I really say, uh, we'll say this and, and, you can disagree with me here and we can have a discussion about it, but I really think 
that there are some passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that at, at the rapture of the, ch- rapture of the church, we, we know that during that tribulation period, there are going to be people who do get saved. We can read about that. You can see that in the book of Revelation. Um, however, I'll say this. I think there are places in Scripture where it seems to indicate, and I'm not going to get hard and fast on it on this, but it seems to indicate that if you've had the opportunity to receive Christ before that date and you rejected Him, that you, uh, during that seven-year period, you may not have the opportunity to get saved because you've made your choice, you've rejected Him. Now, I'm not going to ha- stand on that hard and fast, but I think that's a real possibility. I think there's a very real possibility that those that are getting saved are those who never heard about Christ before the rapture. But that's that's a whole different story, and and I could be wrong on that. I'm not making that a uh, you know a uh, a hill to die on or anything like that. But but this is the chance we get, and the day of judgment is coming. Uh, let's let's go on with verse four. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. We just read that a moment ago, telling us that he's saying it's going to be like a thief in the night for some people, but not for you. Not for you. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Now, the reason the church, the people there were really struggling with this and wondering have we missed the rapture of the church? Is because they had already been suffering intense persecution. And, and it, things were getting worse, and now people had passed away, and Jesus still hadn't returned. Or maybe they thought maybe he did, and somehow we missed it. And, and with this intense persecution, they're wondering, is this that, that wrath of God that you talked about being poured out because we're suffering in this? And, and as they're suffering, they could the, the thought of experiencing anything worse than their current trials obviously brought great, great concerns. So therefore, in this passage, just like it was last week, Paul's primary objective, or at least one of his primary objectives, is to reassure them that God would deliver them from any coming judgment. That's the thing. The, this is one of the things and we'll, uh, when you talk about, you know, some people say, well, the rapture of the church will come after the end of tribulation and these sort of things, but I, I personally don't believe the church will go through the tribulation period because the tribulation period is a period of judgment and the wrath of God. And Jesus took the judgment and the wrath of God on him for me. So he 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 took that on himself so I don't have to experience that. So that that's a whole different matter all there. And I think Paul, he's trying, I feel like he's trying to reassure them that because they're followers of Christ, they are not going to face the day of the Lord, they're not going to face this time of judgment. Uh, in, in contrast to those that are living in the world, they're living in darkness. The Thessalonians had been transferred into a new kingdom. They are, he said, they are sons of the light and sons of the day. That they are, they're not living in darkness. They're not living in, in ignorance. That they are living in the knowledge of, of Christ. And, and therefore, because of that, he's saying they have nothing to fear. They're not in darkness. They're not ignorant of what, what was to occur. Um, and, and, but we know that salvation is coming for them. You know, as I said, God has chosen not to tell his people everything about Christ's return. We don't know it all. We don't. We don't know the time. We don't know the date. We don't know those things. 
we don't know exactly. We know a lot of details, like some that we talked about last week. But, but you know, we don't know how. We, like it says, we'll be changed. First Corinthians 15 says we'll be changed. Well, what does that mean? All I know is I'll be changed. I don't know how it's going to take place. I don't know the timing. You know, was, am I going to be on earth? And then, you know, suddenly uh, as I'm rising, I start changing. I don't know. It's just, you just, you just wonder about these sort of things. But, but uh, he, he wants us, and you know, he doesn't tell us all the details of all that things, all those things. But we do know he does tell us all that we need to know. Paul says, you're not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief in the night. And, and so let me, let me ask you this question. Why is it that this day will not surprise us as believers? I mean, if we don't know the date and time, why is it that we won't be surprised? Yeah, right. I mean, you guys are right on it. Because listen, it's real simple. If you're watching and waiting for something it's very difficult to be surprised by it. You know, think of it like this. You know, if back before the days when you had cell phones where you could track where everybody was and that sort of thing, if you had some visitor, some family member, you know, a loved one, a child maybe that's been, uh, lives off uh, somewhere, some distance away, and they're traveling home for Christmas, and you know they're coming, and you say, okay, they're coming today, sometime today, but I don't know what time they they left. I don't know how their journey's been. I know they're coming today, but I don't know what time they're coming. And so you go through the day constantly, you know, you got the, the, the blinds open on the front door, on the front windows, and you're watching for a car to pull up. You're ready for them. You're, you're looking out the door. You're, you're watching all day long. And, and, and then when they finally show up, maybe they show up at nine o'clock that night. It was a long day of travel. They finally show up. You don't look at them and say, what? You're here? I didn't know this was going to happen. No, you're not surprised. You didn't know when it was going to happen, but you're not surprised at all because you were looking for them. And this is why it's not going to be a surprise to us. This is why it's not going to be like a thief in the night for us and that, that will catch us off guard because we as the people of God are to be watching and waiting. We're looking for his return. We're expecting his return. And we don't know exactly what day it's going to be. We don't know exactly what time of day it's going to be. We don't know any of those kind of things. But we know he's coming so that when he appears, we're not going to be looking up in the sky saying, what? I didn't know you were coming back. No, we're going to be like, I knew it. I knew it. Yeah, maybe that's right. Somebody said, yeehaw. Yeah, that's probably what it's going to be. We're going to be shouting a yeehaw or two on the way up. Uh, so we may not know all the particulars about the return of Christ, but we do know he has promised to return. That's the key. That's the, from the very moment that Christ ascended to, into heaven, the promises remained that he would return again. This is what happened. Acts 1, 9 through, through 11. The, the moment when Jesus ascended into heaven after his, he spent his time with the disciples after his resurrection said, after he said this, talking about Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood behind, beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken back from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. So basically the angels are like, hey, 
why are you staring in the sky? He gave, he told you what you need to do. So get about it. You start doing what you're doing. He's doing because you know, he's coming back from the very first day that he ascended in heaven. That's the message he is. And the truth is he has kept every promise he's ever made. And listen, if anytime anybody keeps every promise they've ever made in my book, they have pretty incredible uh, credibility. They have amazing incredibility. Therefore, we can trust him and we can live every day with the expectancy, uh, with expectancy and watch while we're watching and waiting for his return. Uh, now, a couple of things about light and darkness, the contrast of light and darkness and day and night that he uses here are often used in the Bible to describe God's people and the people of the world. So God's people are those that are living in the light. People in the world are those that are living in darkness. It's, it's metaphor. Scripture, well, we, we live by metaphors all the time. We use metaphors in conversations. It's how we communicate. You know, when we say something is good, we tend to think that it is up. You know, things are looking up. Well, we, that's a metaphor we use. You know, it doesn't literally mean that, every, that things are looking up, you know. And so the, it's a metaphor that Scripture uses to help us understand the difference between living in darkness and living in light. Um, and we see it in first John one, five, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. We see that there. And so if I'm living in light, then the idea is that means I'm living in him. If I'm living in darkness, that means I don't have him in my life because he is light. And here's the thing I've learned about light and darkness is that if there is ever a battle between light and darkness, light always wins. You know, you, you never turn on a light switch and the light bulb comes on and then halfway through the darkness starts beating back the light. The, the light always wins. Um, and a light in the scripture represents what is good and pure and holy and reliable. And darkness represents what is sinful and evil. Uh, in addition to that, light is also related to truth. In that light exposes whatever exists, whether it is good or bad. And that's what truth does. Truth exposes the reality of things. When truth is spoken, it exposes whether something is, is good or evil. And uh, light does the same thing. Uh, in the dark, good and evil look alike. That's why the world can't figure out what's right and what's wrong. How many of you have ever had that moment, situation like this? Maybe not exactly like this, but you're, you're, you walk into your house, it's dark, and all of a sudden you see this dark figure on the other side of the room, and you're like, somebody's in here, and this fear shoots through you. And then you turn the light on, and you realize it's a jacket hanging on a hanger you know, over there. You ever had that thing, kind of thing? Because you can't make out the difference. Light exposes what's really there. Truth exposes what's really there. And, and God's children, because we're children of light, have nothing to fear regarding the rapture of the church and the tribulation because the light has shown us the truth. And because we're living in the light, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear when Jesus returns. And we don't have to fear walking through the day of judgment uh, because of that. Um, and the thing about that is when we... When we stop fearing the future, when we stop worrying about tomorrow, any worriers here? Yeah, a few of us here. And when we stop worrying about tomorrow, when we stop doing, uh, living that way, 
then we are truly liberated to live for today. You know, if I'm caught up with worry about tomorrow and what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen down the road somewhere in the future, then I get paralyzed today. But if I'm set free from my fear of tomorrow, then I can actually live today and do what God's calling me to do today. I want to help you see this truth in a very practical illustration. And, and some of you may not be, be able to completely relate with this, but I think we got enough sports fans here that are able to do it. But I want you to imagine for a moment that there's a big game on TV and, and you're excited about watching it, but for whatever reason, you are not able to watch the game live. But even though you're going to miss it live, you've set it up to record the game. And so you record the game on TV. So you're, you're going to watch it later. Now, you've recorded it and you don't want to know the score. So what do you do? You tell all your friends, don't talk about the game. Don't tell me the score. I don't want to know. I've recorded it because I want to watch it and pretend like it's live. I don't want to know how it came out. So you, you, you tell all your friends that you avoid television. You don't turn on the radio. You stay away from computers. You turn off your smartphone. You do everything. You turn it off. Then you get home and you, and you sit down. And you grab your remote and plop up uh, your, uh, prop your feet up in the recliner and you turn on your TV, but you forgot that when you turned off your TV, it was tuned to ESPN. And so you turn it on and before you can change the channel, there's the final score scrolling across the bottom and you see it and there's nothing you can do about it. And all of a sudden you're like, my root, my evening is ruined. But, but is it? Because the good news is you now know that your team won the game. And, and, and the bad news is that, you know, the anticipation and the thrill of watching the game is not going to be the same. That thrill is gone. But most people would still enjoy watching that game if they saw the score and they knew that their team won. Because now, as you watch it, you're going to watch it with a completely different attitude and a completely different perspective. Because through the flow of the game, when your team suffers a setback, you realize, oh, it's just temporary. I don't know how they're going to get out of this. I don't know how they come back from this setback here, but I know they're going to come back because I saw the final score. I know we won. And when your team falls behind, even if it's by a large margin, you're watching this and you don't get discouraged at all. In fact, you get excited because you're thinking, man, I can't wait to see how they pull this off. And so in a real sense, when the future is not in doubt, the present actually becomes more enjoyable as you walk through those trying times. When I'm watching the game and I and my team is behind and I know they won, then it's fun to watch it because I get to say, man, I, I'm just, I can't wait to see how they pull this off. And when in our lives, knowing that Christ is returning, knowing that he has redeemed us, knowing that, that he has salvation for us, knowing that he is coming back for us, and then in the end we win, when I'm going through a really hard time and it looks like my team is losing, I can sit back and say, man, I can't wait to see how God pulls this one off. See how it changes your perspective, knowing the truth? You don't have to know the details. You just have to know that in the end he wins. And it changes everything. And we have nothing to fear. Because we know he's told us how this thing's going to end. We have nothing to fear. But, however, there's always a big but. 
we do have a responsibility to be ready. So we don't have to be afraid, but we do have a responsibility to be ready. And the Thessalonians were in danger of allowing their end times confusion to distract them from their present day living. They had so many questions about the return of Christ and so many questions about the last days and the end times that they were forgetting to live now. We as believers must be spiritually ready and vigilant at all times, not caught up in the past or in the future, but knowing that Christ's return is imminent. And knowing that will be uh, something that will motivate us to always be prepared, that we're not going to live irresponsibility, you know, sitting and waiting and doing nothing and and, you know, seeking self-serving pleasure and using the time until he returns as an excuse not to do God's work of building his kingdom. But we're going to be responsible, uh, responsible about it. We're going to look at it and say, Jesus is coming and I'm going to stand before him. And I'm not afraid to face him, but I want to make sure that I stand before, before him as a faithful servant. And, and no one should develop a false sense of security based on a, on precise calculations of events. You know, there are people out there that try to tell you, well, I figured out this formula and I know Jesus is going to return. How many remember back, way back in the day, you, and some of you have been around long enough, you, you'll probably remember this. You remember, anybody remember 88 reasons why Jesus would return in 1988? And, and then he didn't return. And guess what the guy did? Instead of repenting, the next year he wrote a new one. 89 reasons why Jesus returned in 1989 and on and on it goes. And, you know, we, we, we get caught up in all these things. But, you know, if I think, well, I got all this time before Jesus returns because I figured out this calculation, that's going to lure me into a false sense of security. And I'm probably going to get lackadaisical in the way I live my life. I need to realize it could be tomorrow. It could be now. It could be five minutes from now. It could be five years from now. It could be 500 years from now. I don't know. I just know he's coming and I need to be ready. I need to be ready. And being ready means that I'm working, that I'm serving, and I'm watching and I'm waiting. Look at verse 6. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So when he talks about sleep here, sleep carries with it the connotation of blissful ignorance. When you're asleep, you don't know what's going on around you, do you? Uh, you know, you, you, somebody wakes you up and says, you're snoring. And you know, how many of you ever, ever woke somebody up and said, you're snoring? They said, no, I wasn't. How do you know you weren't? You were asleep. You don't know. You're living in blissful ignorance there. And some people, you know, some people live their lives with the mantra, if the pressures of life become too difficult, a good nap will make it all disappear. You know, they just want to snooze their way through it. Of course, we all know by experience that the problems that we have never sleep and they don't go away while we're sleeping. But Paul employs a metaphor of sleep here to describe how an unbelieving world views God. So he, he already used sleep in referring to death, but now he's using sleep here in a different way. He, he, he's talking about those that are not awake to the reality of God. And he, he uses the metaphor of sleep to describe how an unbelieving world views God. While God sounds the sirens of judgment, the world takes a nap. 
Boy, if that's not a picture of our world, that the world is imploding around us, and the Bible tells us it would, the Bible talks about these last days, but the world wants to close its eyes and shut up its ears and just pretend like everything's okay and, and pretend like we as human beings can fix it. When the reality is we've had thousands of years to fix it and all we've done is make it worse. And, and, uh, and Paul's point is saying, you know, as a believer, you're not going to live in a state of denial. God's people should be alert and on guard, not asleep. God's people need to be ready because we're watching for his return. And the way to be ready for Christ's return is not by knowing when he will return, because we don't know that. Readiness lies in what Paul talks about here, being alert and sober. And sober doesn't just mean sober as in not drunk or high or anything like that. It just means uh, uh, taking it seriously. Watchfulness involves more than just merely waiting for what is coming. Watchful, watchfulness means doing something while we wait. And readiness lies in carrying out the, the Lord's command. So while I'm waiting and watching, what that really means is that I'm doing everything God called me to do until he comes. That's what it means to wait. That's what it means to be ready. It means I'm walking in faithfulness because if I'm walking in faithfulness as I'm watching for him, I'll be ready. And Paul is describing those who constantly expect the Lord to return at any moment. They're, they're walking close to God in daily fellowship so that they're at the return of Christ, they'll be ready. I think one way you could paraphrase it, he's saying, if we say that we're Christians and that we believe Jesus is coming again, then let's get serious about it. I think that's a good way to say it. Um, let me skip ahead a little bit, save a little bit of time here. Uh, in addition, believers also, as he brings up here, need to realize that we are in a battle. Verse 8, he said, but since... We belong to the day. Let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So Paul's using here the imagery of a soldier's armor. And in doing that, Paul challenges the Christians to prepare for battle. We must be armed with faith and love as a breastplate and with the hope of salvation as a helmet. Paul is really talking about here guarding your heart, guarding your mind. Because uh, faith and love form a breastplate that protects the heart. And hope is the, is the helmet that protects the head. Uh, faith reflects confidence. Love declares loyalty. Hope provides security. And this trio, faith, hope, and love, these are the three big ones that Paul brings up over and over again in his writings. This trio of Christian virtues really forms the essence of Christianity. Here's how, how it goes. Believe what God says by faith. Do what God requires out of love. And trust that God, what God promises because of hope. When we believe God by faith and we respond to Him out of love, guess what? The natural outcome of that is a life filled with hope. Now, I want to just say briefly this, this, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But I want to remind you 
Paul is talking about putting this armor on because spiritual warfare is real. And we, we, we you know, now in modern days, you know, we forget, uh, but, but uh, the biggest part of spiritual warfare goes on in our minds. Every time you're faced with temptation, that's spiritual warfare. We, we tend to think of it, you know, that I've got to go and, and I've got to bind this and loose that and all these kind of things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm saying that's just, that's the, that's the edges of spiritual warfare. The, the, the heart of spiritual warfare is the battle that takes place inside of us every single day. And, 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 the, and it's the battle for people who are coming to know Christ, to, to lead them to Christ and to, to win that. Because listen, Satan does not easily accept people leaving his kingdom for God's kingdom. He hates God. He hates you because you are in the, made in the image of God. And he hates anybody getting saved and following him. And so he fights that. And we need to understand that he's fighting for that. If you have people you love who need Jesus and you're praying for them, you need to understand that's not going to just happen, that this is going to be something you're going to have to fight for, that you love them enough to fight for their salvation spiritually in prayer and in serving them and in, in pouring your life out for them and whatever it takes. That's what you have to do. That's part of the battle but those who believe in Christ are assured of victory. It's kind of going back to that whole idea. If we know the end, the score at the end of it, then we watch the game in a different way. We fight the battle in a different way too. Because we know in the end, Jesus wins. Well, fact is, I shouldn't even say that. We know the reality is, Jesus has already won. We're, he's already won. He's, he exposed the powers of darkness. Colossians, there's a verse there I love where it talks about how he, 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 he made a public spectacle of the powers of darkness. He has already won. And so what we need to do is get into the battle for the souls of mankind, realizing that we're on the winning side. And But the thing is, we know that victory is coming. We know that victory is ours. But we have to remember that we have to engage in the struggle until Christ's return. Until, because Satan is constantly battling against all who are on the Lord's side. But God gives us the supernatural armor for the battle, but, but we have to put it on. We have to put it on. Verse 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. In order to wear hope as a helmet, we have to know in whom we are hoping. Um, our, our hope lies secure because God is in charge. God has made the decision and, and he has not appointed his people to suffer wrath. And because God has ordained it that way, because he has appointed it that way, it is absolutely certain. Um, and, and, and I, I do want to say that this verse to me is one of the, one of the more powerful indicators in this book that the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation period, because the tribulation is the pouring out of God's wrath. And what does he say? He says, God did not appoint us to wrath. They're afraid that they had already entered in the day of the Lord. And he's, his whole argument that they haven't is that, hey, God has not appointed you for wrath, but for salvation. And so I, I think that's a big part of what he's saying here. And we know that God's wrath is very real. It is very real. We, we are living under the grace of God. Thank God for that. But his wrath is real and sin will be punished. 
And those who refused his offer of forgiveness will indeed suffer God's wrath. But he's reassuring the Thessalonian believers that they have a different destiny than the destiny of an unbelieving world. Because God has not appointed us to wrath, but we will receive salvation through Christ. And in verse 10, he says, Christ died for us so that we may live together with him. Ties it back to what he was talking about with in Philippians chapter 4 about the rapture of the church. Those who have died and those who are still alive, doesn't matter. We're all going to be together. We're going to live together with him and with each other. And the, the reality is, is what Paul is saying here, it's very strong language, is that God has appointed this to come to pass. And there is no power that can change his plan. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And that's why he closes with verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. He uses those words, encourage one another. Those are the exact same words that he used in verse 18 when he was talking about the rapture of the church. Despite persecution and sorrow over fellow believers who had died, these Christians needed to encourage one another about the certainty of their future reunion with all believers. Listen, when you are going through hard something hard, it, it, now sometimes we like to wallow in our pity party for a while and we don't want to hear any encouragement. We we just want people to feel sorry for us. But when we get past ourselves and and and, and then what we need to hear is we need to hear somebody remind us, hey, this really hurts right now, but it's not always going to be like this. Hey, you're, you're dealing with this separation right now because someone you loved has died. But I want you to know, you got to remember, it's not always going to be like this. We have hope. That's the encouragement that we have to give to one another. And he also says to build each other up. You know, I can't help but wonder, you know, how many times do we tear one another apart instead of building each other up? We, we, we need to. Stop and think about what we're saying to and about people before we say it. One of the best things we can learn to do is to hold our tongue and ask ourselves some questions before we make a statement. The first question is, is what I want to say right now going to help build this person up or is it going to tear them down? Now, sometimes that doesn't mean that you, you can't say anything that's difficult because sometimes they need to hear the truth and sometimes the truth hurts. But even that can be said in a way to ask yourself, am I, if I say it and I say it the way I want to say it, is this going to encourage them and build them up? Is it going to lead them toward the truth or is it going to push them away? Is it going to tear them down? The other question is, is what I want to say going to encourage or discourage this person? Paul says we need to make sure that we are encouraging one another. So choose your words carefully and make sure you encourage and build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm telling you something. If you want to have friends, learn how to be a consistent encourager because that is rare in today's world. And people love to be around an encourager. People love to have people around them who are constantly prodding them forward and saying, it's going to be, you can make it. God's, God's got you. He's going to see you through. He's, God is working in this. He, 
people, if you want to have friends, learn to be an encourager. That will, that will make a difference in your life and it make a difference in the lives of people all around you. We have to always stand together with one another as we anticipate our Savior's return because this is what I know, and I know you figured this out. Some of you figured this out long before I ever did, but this life is hard. And I need all the encouragement from my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ that I can get. I heard one amen. Anybody else want to say amen on that one? Yeah, we need one another. But we got to remember this. Sometimes we need the encouragement. So we just kind of sit back and wait for somebody to encourage us. But instead, in that moment, you need to realize I'm not alone in this. I don't face anything that's different than anybody else. If I need encouragement, somebody else does. And if you'll start speaking encouragement to them, you'll be amazed at the encouragement that comes back to you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reality that we know is true, that Jesus is coming again, and that the day of judgment is coming. But Lord God, that you have not appointed us to wrath. But God, we know that this life is not all there is and all the things we're dealing with and all the suffering, all the pain, all of that is temporary. And Lord God, we know that in the end, our team wins. And so God, we, we watch this life, we walk through this life with a different attitude and a different perspective because we know in the end, no matter what I go through, you're gonna carry us through. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be the kind of people that encourage other people around us with those words that we would be constant reminders to everyone that we can that Jesus is the one that can see us through. Jesus will carry you through and that we will be encouragers. And Lord, that you would, you would anoint those words that we share, that they would sink deeply into the hearts of men and women around us and that other people would, would be encouraged to keep going forward because you've used us, Lord. We thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.